The Long Tunnel by Mr. Michael Squid. Tommy told me about the tunnel when I was 13. Deep in the overgrown woods past the Miller property, leading into the soil beneath a hill was a large circular drainage tunnel that had long been discontinued. Tommy brought me there one March afternoon. Check it out, is this creepy or what? Tommy pulled out a tin of rolling tobacco and twisted up a cigarette. He licked the paper and smirked, lifting an eyebrow as he watched for my reaction. Just an old drainage ditch, not really. But it was creepy. A black mouth of shadow that looked far out of place among the green leaves and yellow sunlight of spring. Tommy was 15 though, and I always tried to act braver than I felt. <laughs> if it ain't creepy, then let's see you go in. And that's how it began. A rivalry between two close friends. The ennui of growing up in the backwoods with nothing better to do and a pitch black circle leading into the unknown. I'm not getting rabies from some nest of raccoons, man. So you're scared. Tommy looked up at me from under his greasy black bangs. It was that belittling look he gave me when he beat me at Street Fighter. The look he flashed when he corrected me in front of another kid. Psh, watch me. I hissed and marched through the rustling leaves and sprouting grasses up to the bank to the large tunnel. I took a step inside and felt my neck hairs rise. It was at least 10 degrees colder in the darkness of the concrete tube. My ears struggled to listen, wary of any sound that might alert me that something was in the shadows with me. Nothing but a dense silence. See, I went in. Big deal. I said it nonchalantly as if it truly were nothing, but there was a palpable horror working its way into my skin every second I was inside. I wasn't claustrophobic or afraid of the dark, something about that tunnel filled me with the worst kind of dread. I stepped outside into the sunbeams that poked through the canopy of leaves. It felt good to be out. Okay, big shot, my turn. Bet I can go deeper than you. Tommy did a little jog in place, shuffling his sneakers like a boxer before shadow boxing the air. I giggled a bit watching him punch in his baggy sweatshirt. He dropped his arms and paused, and then he stepped inside the tunnel. And then he began to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Tommy counted each step he took deeper into the shadows, and with every step, he became harder to see within the shadows. His voice grew more distant and reverberated as he counted. Eight, nine, ten. Tommy was no longer visible by the tenth step and that awoke some primordial fear in me. The concept of being swallowed by shadows on such a lovely spring day felt like an eternity as I stared into the black circle inset into the hill. I was about to call his name when he spoke. Nine, eight, seven. Tommy continued backtracking and soon his fuzzy form appeared as he returned. Zero, ha, won't lie, I gotta rush, man. Pretty creepy when it's just pitch blackness all around you. Anyhow, new world record, baby! And then that smug grin to top it off. God, I hated that look. I can do better, I said. I stepped inside the mouth into the earth, shaking my arms all floppy to get a laugh out of Tommy. I felt my heart begin to speed up as I took my first steps in. One, two, three, four. It was much colder after stepping in a few paces. My eyes struggled to make out what they saw where there was no light, but only blackness met them. Five, six, 
Seven. Eight. I was in complete shadow then, no longer able to see the curved concrete walls around me. It was indeed a rush. Some optical illusion that made me feel as if I was plucked outside of the physical world. Nine. Ten. Eleven. Twelve. I was cold. Far colder than seemed right. And with each number counted, my voice changed. It no longer seemed to reverberate as it had before, almost as if the tunnel was opening up wider as I went. I stood then, as my fears culminated in a wave of paranoid horror about what lay in the darkness surrounding me. My mind conjured up things too horrific to pen, things left to adapt to such a black world that they had no use for eyes, only ravenous jaws and long, sharp fangs. I heard a chattering that nearly sent me screaming until I realized it was the clacking of my shivering teeth. I'd beaten Tommy, and so I abruptly turned, feeling my hair stand on end at the thought of turning my back to whatever might be lying in wait in those shadows. I walked back to the ring of sunlit woods far faster than I had entered. I stepped outside, feeling the sunlight warm my goosebumped skin. I clenched my jaws tight so Tommy wouldn't hear my teeth and know I'd been shivering. Thirteen, sucker! I bragged. Ha! You win this round! Tommy huffed, and with that, I was king for a day. At least in my own mind. And with that, the tunnel game was born. Tommy and I came back to the tunnel again and again, chasing that thrill. Each time, we broke our previous records as we tried to outdo one another. We began treading farther into the deep, dark tunnel, counting our steps with pride as we broke new depths. My record of 13 was quickly bested by Tommy, who walked 25. I beat that when I got to 35. The farther we went inside that black, unknown tunnel, the harder it was to hear. Soon our voices wouldn't even carry enough to register how many steps we had taken. Tommy had the idea to speak out the steps to each other on our phones. My record of 35 was beaten by Tommy, who made it to 50. My confidence had grown and with it the enjoyment of chasing the thrill of being that far into the unknown. The realization it was just my mind playing tricks on me bolstered my nerves. On one particular day, I was determined to avoid that snide gaze of Tommy. Despite my growing dread of the absolute isolation in that tunnel, I decided I was going to beat him. And so I set out into the black hole underground, deeper into the concrete drainage tunnel. I made it to 10, then 20, then 30. The air on my skin was cold, and the reverberation once again dampened as if the tunnel itself was widening. 35, 36, 37, 38, I held the phone tight against my ear, counting off the steps as fuzzy shadows danced in front of my struggling eyes. I continued counting as I paced, attempting to conceal any sign of fear. But once I counted past 50, I was very much afraid. 51, 52, 53. My heart was pounding. There was no echo at all. I raised the phone, using the lit screen to shine into the darkness before me. I aimed it to the walls, expecting to see the curved concrete arching up on either side. But there was nothing. Just black space around me. So thick, it made me queasy and disoriented. And then my eyes began to play tricks. 
Darker shadows in the absence of light seemed to form and shift. The shapes of tall, stretched figures seemed to lean in from the recesses of the space. A hallucination caused by sensory deprivation, I gathered, but I swore I could almost make one out dead ahead of me. A long face, three feet tall, with black ovals of eyes, and a vertically stretched, gaping mouth. I stopped. It was too dark to make out, but I felt as if something was in there, watching me. I lifted the phone to my ear and spoke. I'm heading back. And with that, I turned in an about face, but my throat closed. The entrance was no longer visible. I can't see the entrance. I panicked. Where's the entrance? Who's fucking around? Just turn around and count backwards. My heart was pounding in my chest, but having Tommy on the line with me seemed to lessen the feeling of being lost. 53, 52, 51. Tommy, I can't see it! I was panicking then. I was completely disoriented. Quit it, keep walking. Tommy stated bluntly. I then felt warm eddies of air waft onto my neck from behind. It felt like breath, tangible, actual breath. I smelled it too. A bitter reek of something long decayed, something arcane and meant to be forgotten. My throat closed and my eyes widened, straining to make out that bastion of an exit. I walked faster. Fifty, forty-nine, forty-eight. I counted as panic screamed in my brain. Forty-seven, forty-six, forty-five. I finally saw the tiny green circle ahead, and I raced towards it. There in the entrance was Tommy with folded arms, a smug look on his face. Nice try, he stated defiantly. I think, I think something was in there. I panted, trying to catch my breath. I couldn't see the entrance. It's harder to see after 50, huh? He flashed that smug look again. And nice try. I'm serious, I pleaded, but it was no use. You ain't beating me. Nice fucking try. Tommy glowered at me and then grinned before stepping in. He counted to 20 aloud before ringing me on the phone. Oh man, there's a killer cloud in here. Tommy joked and continued walking deeper into the shadowy depths. He was toying with me, convinced I was trying to psych him out. And he wasn't going to let me win. Time stretched on forever as his voice tallied up the number of steps he took as he strolled into the underground tunnel. 51, 52... 53, beat you loser. 54, 55, stop fucking with me. I felt a wave of shivers. The confidence in his voice faltered. 58, 59, 60. His voice had become a monotonous whisper then. It was as if he was reading off in a trance. Every number was spoken the same way, lacking emotion and weak. Okay, you, you win, man, I said. You are the all-time champ. Come back. I swallowed the lump in my throat, but it only grew as he counted past 70 and then 80. Tears were streaming down my cheeks. 102, 103. He sounded hollow, like some distant memory of himself, carrying deeper and deeper into the blackness. I pleaded with him snotty-nosed and running with tears as I begged him to turn around. I didn't care if he'd make fun of me. I just desperately wanted it to not be real. But the numbers kept rising as time passed on and on. He made it to around 250, 
when his voice became so faint and staticky that it was inaudible. And there I sat in the woods, staring at the black hole to oblivion, covered with tears and screaming at the trees. I dialed the police and told them my friend was stuck in a tunnel in the woods. I dared not leave the mouth of the thing in case he came back, but he didn't. The officer that arrived drew a gun and a blindingly bright flashlight, and once he shone the beam in to illuminate the dark tunnel, every single hair on my body raised. You could see where the cemented tunnel ended from the entranceway. It was no more than 50 paces in. I went over the story repeatedly, but they insisted he pulled a trick, sneaking out at some point. Opinions changed when he didn't return home, and the missing posters went up. Some people spread a rumor that I'd killed him and buried him, making up an outlandish story, but the woods were searched by groups and dogs, and finally the rumor went away. I can't ever forget the shapes and the shadows I saw after 50 steps, after where the tunnel ended and the darkness opened up to something else, something far more horrifying than a person should ever know. I can't forget the feeling of breath on my neck. I can't forget the pungent smell, but far worse, I can't forget the tally. Every so often when I'm on the phone, I can hear it ever so faintly through the static. Tommy's emotionless voice, listing off his steps. The end. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum. <laughs> and this <laughs> is Ghoul Attention. Yay! Ah. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for this episode. I'm so excited for this episode. Are you excited? Yes. Why are, why are you so excited? Well, first of all, because of that fucking amazing cold open we just got from none other yeah. than Sean fucking Schimmel. Sean <laughs> Who, He's... Sean, if you're listening, you're probably not. But if you are, <laughs> we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. That is, we've had a lot of awesome guests do the cold opens, but that has to be my favorite so far. Like, this motherfucker went all out with the read, the effects, everything. It's great. It's great. The bar is so now fun. raised. It um, has been. And yeah. and also, this is, the, I believe, the longest cold open that we've had. Yeah. So that's yeah. fun, too. Uh, so yeah, thanks thank for you, also Sean. helping us eat into my, the time. <laughs> one of my favorite things is that, so if you listened at the, till the very end of his story, uh, which if you're listening to us, you probably did, um, you can hear uh, um, some him say, uh, uh the end. You're welcome. So when he says that, he is, uh, that is his Michael Tatum voice. That's Sean's Michael Tatum voice. He does it all the time. It's really funny. Yeah. Uh, and um, <laughs> one of my favorite things is he messaged me afterwards and was like, it's like Michael's what took them. It's Michael's what took the guy. He's the thing in the dark because it's his voice coming out of the cave. <laughs> 
<laughs> kills me. Oh, it my, kills me. My secret oh, is my secret so, is oh, out. Oh, and the story. Let me uh, let me say the story before I forget. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, the story is the long tunnel. It's on Reddit by Mr. Michael Squid. Such a good story too. What a great what a great pen Creepy. name, Michael Squid. Michael Squid, Mr. Michael Squid. Uh, Michael Squid. Yeah, it's a badass. Thank you, Mr. Squid. Mm-hmm. Oh, no sleep, I think, is what God. I mean, So It's a good story. Uh, and thank good you, story. Sean. So good. We are so appreciative. Um, so good. And you might know Sean. Uh, he's most, I guess I would say, widely known as Goku in Dragon Ball. Yes. The. Kai, Super, the, all of them. The Goku. All across. Yeah. yeah the, he's the Goku. The. The capital, American Goku. Capital The. Yeah. Goku. Yeah. And uh, what a delightful, <laughs> what a delightful man he is. Thank you so much, uh-huh. Sean. Thank you, Sean. We owe you one. Um, yeah. Our title today, uh, yes. we've decided, should be Caveat Imptor, which most of you probably know is Latin for buyer beware. And the reason we decided to call it that is because my subject today, which we will get to in the latter half of the episode, is the infamous Union Screaming House. If you've not heard of it, it's fucking creepy. It's why I'm so excited to do it. Uh, and Jamie, what's your topic today? Uh, my topic is the Hoosack, I think that's how you say it, uh, the the Hoosack Tunnel in Massachusetts. Oh. It is, uh, um, well, here's the thing. We have had so many tunnels just fucking appear in any story that we do recently. It's like, guess what? There's a tunnel. And so when I was messaging you to see what you were doing, I believe I said to you, hey, is there a tunnel in it? <laughs> and I, I was like, probably. Was. Yeah. And so then I was like, you know what I should do? I should just bite the bullet and do a tunnel, do a story about just a fucking tunnel. Embrace the darkness. Just embra- <laughs> it's supposed to happen. So, so you, that's what You picked happened. a cold open with a tunnel. Your topic yeah. has a tunnel. Embrace um, the tunnel. Yeah. I My my topic may have a tunnel, but I don't want to give it away yet. Um, okay. So before, okay, so I wanted to try something a little new this time, Jamie, which I'm just, I'm delighted to kind of try out and see if you like it, because it's really mm-hmm. all about making you laugh or gasp or whatever. Uh, I love it. So I decided. And I need at, it. At, at the, the girls begin- left on Sunday. I know. So we took sad. them back. We're very sad. We miss them so much. Um, so I need cheery things. And everyone, positive vibes, send us positive vibes that the girls remain safe yes. amid the pandemic because, you know, yes, they definitely. probably will be, School but every, every little bit helps. Uh, so I thought to, to help cheer you up then, I would do a little segment each week. Uh, well, we'll see <laughs> how often I do it, but I would do introduce a new little segment called News of the Weird, which is just, I've gone through and collected some of the more striking, bizarre, sometimes paranormal related uh, news headlines from the past couple it. of weeks. So, uh, so didn't just, that used to be in the Reader's Digest? Wasn't that wasn't they, like their news of the weird they in the had, Reader's they, Digest? There's, you know, it's funny. They, I think you're right. Yeah, they did it with the magazine Forty and Times and Bizarre UK. They've also do. There's a Twitter account called News of the Weird, which some of these headlines come from. And there's Thank and uh, and uh, uh, um, Huff Post does one as well. Yeah. So News of the Weird is, remember, a, is a popular thing. But I think I think you're right. I think maybe Reader's Digest started it. I remember reading them at my grandparents' house. It was something that my grandparents read, and they didn't have, like, normal magazines, but they did have Reader's Digest. And, mm. of course, the Star-Telegram. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> the Inquirer, Inquiring Minds want to know. They had those for my grandmother. But I yes. think the news of the weird, because they also had that, and then there were some other fun little articles in Reader's Digest, mm. I think, mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was... Yep. Yep. Um, 
Well, let's see. Let's see how this stacks up. Uh, So let me just jump in. Man beheads landlord. Starting strong. A Connecticut man beheaded his landlord after being threatened with eviction. On Saturday, August 1st, the Hartford PD responded to a 911 call from property owner Victor King, who claimed his roommate, 42-year-old Jerry Thompson, was brandishing a sword at him on account of King threatening to kick him out for unpaid rent. Returning to King's apartment the following day after neighbors reported being concerned for his safety, police discovered a grisly crime scene. King's body, fraught with lacerations and missing his head, though it was in the next room, uh, lay under a pile of blood-soaked bedding. CCTV footage clearly shows Thompson exiting his white Jeep in the parking lot with what appears to be a samurai sword in his hand, entering King's apartment and emerging half an hour later. When brought in for questioning, King, uh, excuse me, Thompson referred police to paperwork in the glove box of his Jeep that he believes confirms his status as a sovereign citizen, i.e. someone not subject to federal or state law. In keeping with this bizarre motif, after being formally charged with murder, Thompson refused to be represented by a public defender. The suspected murder weapon was discovered 10 miles away in the Farmington River, and just so you know, he's not a sovereign citizen, so he going down. Um, Yeah, also, if you're a sovereign citizen and you genuinely believe that you are not held accountable to man's law, apparently, <laughs> why are you going to hide that sword? <laughs> right. right. Right? Like, mm, wouldn't you be mm, like, I did mm, this thing, but mm, that's okay because mm. I'm sovereign as fuck. That's not what he said. <laughs> he went and hid the sword. Right, Please. right. Uh, the next item is just curious. Uh, Ellen's replacement? As Ellen DeGeneres' mm. reputation continues to beg your pardon, degenerate amid accusations of of the hit NBC talk show being a toxic workplace, fans are petitioning for her to be replaced by comedian provocateur Eric Andre, of all people, notorious for his antics on Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Calling for 15,000 signatures, the petition reads, with the recent scandals plaguing Ellen DeGeneres, we hereby nominate Eric Andre to become the new permanent host of The Ellen Show. Andre fans have been lining up outside of NBC Studios and his house for some reason, chanting about it since last week. Making things even weirder, the petition specifies that the show must keep the Ellen name. (laughs) All right, I like that. I do like that dynamic. Yeah, it's kind of fun. (laughs) And Eric Andre, I I, I don't know, he's grown on me. I used to be really annoyed by him, but I think he's really funny sometimes. Uh, It just depends. (laughs) Same, yeah. Yeah. Well, scratch that. I think he's always funny. It's just all like, man, I... Would I want to hang out with this guy? No, I don't. I feel like, right. it, you know, he's a liability. But maybe that's an act. I don't know. But I think his his Dadaist brand of humor is right up my alley. But, man, it's still sometimes a bit much. Uh, but wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't that be fucking interesting? Um, yeah. Pandemic. I think it should be one. If they, re- if they replace her. Yeah. I don't know they if they're going to do it. Uh, yeah, they... I think it should be Wanda Sykes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Fuck yes. Uh, pandemic news. <laughs> an Irish pub in Spain. <laughs> Let that sink in. Has done its part to There's fight COVID. There's an Irish pub everywhere, as well there should be. <laughs> yes. Well, this Irish pub has done its part to fight COVID by banning the Neil Diamond song, Sweet Caroline. <laughs> Murphy's Irish Bar in Catalejo, Spain, reasons that more droplets of saliva pass from person to person during the infamous bum, bum, bum part yeah, of the chorus than in any other popular sing-along and has thus declared the tune forbidden on its premises. My favorite, though, is the sign-out front now reads, there will be no touching hands, reaching out, touching me, (laughs) touching you. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that's another thing, too, though, that, that people on that part of the song, people reach out and, like, touch each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not, yeah, so, that's I mean, not it, it's, social distancing. It's smart. Maybe they should just close all together. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I, I know they got bills to pay. Um, thousands right. of... Not, it's not in the United States, so... Right. What is it, in Florida? No, they're fine. Uh, right. This is this next is maybe my favorite. Thousands of sex crazed macaques have overrun Lopery Thailand and are gorging themselves to death on junk food. The monkeys. I think you mean to say Thailand first of all. <laughs> is that a dig on my weight? Um, oh no! No. <laughs> the monkeys, who've cohabited the city more or less peacefully for decades, have since increased their numbers and ramped up their hijinks since the coronavirus lockdown and are running amok. Locals began feeding them sugary snacks in an attempt to kind of keep the peace, but surprise, surprise, this only made things worse. The infestation has spiraled out of control. Certain areas of the city are so bad that they're now deemed no-go zones, and authorities are powerless to disperse the malnourished and agitated swarms believed now to be over 6,000 strong. Now, for those of you who are hearing this— Oh, my gosh. Angry birds. (sighs) Not angry. Hangry birds. Angry birds. No, no, no. Not birds. Monkeys. Monkeys. Macaques. Macaques are monkeys. Yeah, no, you're thinking macaws. Macaques. Oh, that's what I thought you said. Okay. No, no, macaques. Fucking like four four foot tall monkeys that get into fucking everything. So, and for those of you that hear that and flashback like I did to the 1984 film Gremlins, it also happens, and this is true, the macaques have actually set up a lair in an abandoned movie theater where they also have a little area where they store their deceased. (gasps) <gasps> it's so strange, right? It's so strange. Um, and finally, crazy. <laughs> AI researchers are teaming up with theater professionals in the Czech Republic to create the world's first play written entirely by robots. Rudolf Rosa of Charles uh. University said his team is working together with Svanda Theater and the Academy of Performing Arts in Prague on the project dubbed <laughs> The AI-ter. The idea was suggested by entrepreneur Thomas Studnik as a means of celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 1921 play R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, uh, widely credited with popularizing the term robot. So there you have it, five items that prove we're still uh, living in a dystopian YA fiction novel hellscape. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Wow. Those are that's very weird. Thank you for that. I enjoyed it. You're welcome. It. You're welcome. I, I want to bring a little something like that each week just for the hell of it, just to see. Cause I, yeah. I get the I get the biggest kick out of just weird news where I'm like, well, that's the thing that's happening and huh. Yeah. All right. Oh wait, there's always something weird. Mm-hmm. If you are at home listening and thinking of some weird thing that happened locally, please send us your news of the weird too. We'd love we to would include love it. To hear it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> okay, do we want to get? I feel like we're going so fast today. I, well, there's a lot. Not, there's a lot of ground to cover. I know. Um, okay. So uh, you, you tell us, tell us. I have no idea. I have no idea of the story about the Hosak House. Hosak. Hosak. H o o s a c. I believe it's Hosak. Hosak. Now tunnel. I could have Googled how to pronounce it, but I'm going to Google not. it right now. So. <laughs> I think just it's to see. And then it's probably like, going to be said, something should, like it's pronounced. This is what I said to myself while I was doing the research. I should really Google this. And that was where I left that thought. <laughs> 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 Never went back there to visit it or oh, ask it how God. it was doing. So. Now I have to, like, fucking find the uh, pronunciation. The, yeah. Pronunci- Who's that? The Hoosack Tunnel. 
I'm trying. Yeah. Pronunciation. Okay, well, let me tell my... Yeah, sorry, be, sorry. Uh, I, 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 oh. Husak, Husak Tunnel. Pronunciation. How to pronounce Husak Tunnel in English. Uh, okay, here we go. Wait, wait, wait. You're right. It's Husak. Husak. Yay. Yay. Okay. Thank you, Google. So my sources for this story are uh, Husak Tunnel, an MCLA project site on storyland.coplacdigital.org, uh, <laughs> coplacdigital, or coplacdigital. I don't know. Uh, Storyland.coplacdigital.com. <laughs> org, I mean, dot org. Uh, the Haunted Hoosack Tunnel by Alex Johnson on museumhack.com. An nice. article on the New England Historic Society and American Hauntings, Inc. Nice, nice, so, nice. And this is funny. I've never heard of this, too. So what I have found myself doing recently is just uh, finding something random, finding a random state, and then following that to something and so this time it was like i think i should do a tunnel the the spirit is telling me do a tunnel do and a so tunnel. i did um oh, i just closed my glasses on my hair and then ripped <laughs> my hair out so that should be fun all right this is a good start this is, i feel it's strong good. about I feel, it i feel good about it okay i got the name right you know what else can i ask you did for? you did you did Okay, so the Hoosack Tunnel is named the Hoosack Tunnel because it's a passage carved through the Hoosack Range in the Berkshire or Berkshire Mountains. It depends on where you're from. I'm sure how that said it. Uh, Berkshire is kind of how I want to say it because it's in, in the Americas. <laughs> but uh, the mount- they're in western Massachusetts. Hoosack is an Algonquin word meaning place of stones. Hmm. Um, so in western Massachusetts, way back when early 1800s, you had East Hoosack, which eventually split up into Adams and East Adams. Okay. So those city, that's where those cities' names came from. And then you had West Hoosack, which eventually became Williamstown, or if you were British, Williamston. <laughs> and then, or Char- Charlestown, Charleston, I guess. Uh, but anyway, then you had Clarksburg. So those three cities you know, we're up there or west there. Uh, And the area itself is relatively blocked off from the rest of the state of Massachusetts. In creating this tunnel, it would open up the small valley to other parts of the state, connecting Boston to Boston and Boston connecting to the west from there. The initial plan was to make it a canal, right, to Mm -hmm. dig through the mountain water yeah. Uh, and it would connect the Hudson River to the Connecticut River. Okay. In the end, this plan was eventually changed to the plan to make it a railroad tunnel uh, with the advancing technology of steam locomotion. Big oh. deal. Okay. All um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So in the idea for the Hoosack Tunnel was brought up in 1819. However, construction did not begin until much later in 1851. So it was quite a while. Keep in mind, the first transcontinental railroad, which linked the east and west coasts, uh, it had like over a thousand miles of rail connecting it. That was not started until 1862. Mm. So this idea was very much ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, And that's probably why they could not get public support for it. Mm. So they kept bringing it up and it would fail bringing it up, trying to get it, and it would fail. And so this man named Alva Crocker got involved and spent his life advocating for and trying to bring the Hoosack Tunnel to light. 
Some would call him the father of the Hussack Tunnel. He convinced many farmers and other mill workers that the tunnel and railroad would be a positive addition to the area. He spent much of his time and effort speaking with representatives of many towns between Western Massachusetts and Boston to convince them that the tunnel was great, that they should do it. And as the cities grew, the idea of a simpler way to get from fucking one side to the other seemed more appealing because there were more people that were like, you know what? Yeah, I kind of like that idea. Let's try farmers, it. Mm-hmm. Farmers didn't necessarily want to do it. They thought it would bring bad things through. And then eventually they, he convinced the farmers and a lot of other people. Mm. Um, so in, finally, the project got the approval it needed, and that's when construction began in 1851. Digging big tunnels underground has always been rather dangerous as you the think? crow flies. <laughs> but <laughs> as the mine canary flies. But, as the uh, mine canary coughs. Was, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it was particularly terrible in the 1850s. Mm. And it because it was so dangerous and deadly, the work was slow. Construction began in 1851, and the tunnel was not completed until 1875. Damn. It was a long time. I mean, you think about it, it was introduced. The Were idea they digging was it by hand? <laughs> what? Were they digging it by hand, like literally with their hands? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, Jesus. Well, uh, you think the idea came out in 1819, and it didn't get finished until 1875. So that's a long uh, time yes. to have, yeah, um, Low-tech, unsafe conditions, noxious, volatile, flammable gases, Mm -hmm. and highly unstable explosives, right? Right. Doesn't that sound like the best place to work? Don't you want to work there? Like, yes, let's do that. I would (laughs) would rather be a robot writing a play, but sure. Right. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Voice acting is hard. Really? Is it? (laughs) Not not as hard as digging a tunnel in the 1800s. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, the lot of, there are a lot of stories about the Hussack Tunnel workers and uh, ghosts, but one of the most popular stories has what all good ghost stories have. Murder. Murder. <laughs> oh, we're going to have a lovely so, murder pool. A little murder party. Uh, in 1865, nitroglycerin was the shiny new volatile chemical compound used to blow the shit out of mountains. Yes? <laughs> In March of that year, three explosive so-called experts. I mean, what defined an explosive expert, right? I saw that guy do it. I can do it now. Um, (laughs) They decided to try nitroglycerin on the Hoosac Mountains. Ned Brinkman, Billy Nash, and Ringo Kelly. I saw someone describe them as uh, Ned Brinkman, Billy Nash, and drummer Ringo Kelly. (laughs) I was like, yeah. Uh, They were supposed to prime a charge and then head to a safety bunker for the actual detonation. For some unknown reason, Ringo got to the bunker first and then blew the nitro before the other guys could get out of the mountain. Brinkman and Nash were buried alive or most likely dead in the rubble left from the explosion. Ding. Damn it. <laughs> I bet the explosion so didn't sound as pleasant. Uh, um, not long afterwards, though, so the explosion happens. Nash and Br- Brinkman die. And not long afterwards, Kelly disappears. Mm. Ten days later, workers found Kelly about two miles deep in the tunnel near where his partners were killed. Ringo was dead as well. He'd been strangled. Oh, oh. Yeah. 
Without any suspects, the case went cold, but the tunnel workers believed the ghosts of Brinkman and Nash got their revenge on Kelly. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Now, well, this particular story is very well known. It's told a lot in town. It can be found on numerous websites, blogs, and even in books. That said, the earliest records from the 1865 incident appear to turn up around the 1970s with a ghostly twist. So we don't hear about it until the 1970s. Mm. Ringo makes a lot more sense if the name was created in the 1970s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right? Uh, Ringo, the name Ringo was a red flag for me. And also uh, the fact that they were running away so that they could light the explosives. But, Mm. uh, and a lot, there's a couple of different ways the stories are told, but it's usually he left and then it, it turned it on before they could get out. But then he's found two miles in. So why yes. are they running two miles to get out? This Something yes. about this doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, that seems odd. So it wasn't all the way out. It was probably part way out or whatever. But, uh, and then the other thing is it's always introduced as a ghost story mm. and not a murder story. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's right? usually the a good sign site that it's researched not this true. alleged. <laughs> Yeah, it just doesn't quite add up. Yeah. Uh, the MCLA site researched this alleged haunting and has yet to find anything of the incident before it was told as a ghost story. They did find one article that mentioned a police case, but nothing has really come of it. So mm. that story cannot be verified. Mm. I lean towards towards it probably not being true because they did keep fairly decent records regarding other deaths at the site, and this is not mentioned in those records. Hmm. Yeah, what? that's unusual. Right. I, yeah. I'm going to yeah. say it's not true. It's not included. It's probably not included. Uh, what other deaths you might ask? <gasps> what other deaths? I do well, ask. Well, let me first say that although this is a great spooky story, right, the whole Ringo Kelly mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. the actual stories regarding the deaths at the Husak Tunnel didn't need any help. Mm. Not when building the tunnel claimed the lives of over 190 men. Oh, God. And that shit is documented. Jesus Christ. So oh. many people died during the building of the Husak Tunnel that it started to be known as the Bloody Pit. Ooh, shit. Yeah. These men were killed in numerous accidents. Falling rock. Falling themselves, loads that were overturned, falling drills, drowning, drawing a charge, and fire. They didn't always know the names of the workers that were killed, but the deaths were documented. Sometimes it was just brother of this this person and brother. Stone, no first name. Uh, unknown worker, unknown British worker. Like, those are the names that go in there. Workers died in and around the tunnel, but not all deaths were of tunnel workers either, uh, such as 14-year-old Oren Wilson, the son of a worker. Oren was found in September of 1874 with his head crushed after having been struck by an elevator. It is believed Oren was with a friend, but the friend ran away because he'd been scared and uh, was too afraid to come forward to tell people what had actually happened. Mm. But he had been crushed by an elevator in within the tunnels. And it like there's a the main tunnel, there's different side tunnels and all of that kind of stuff too. 
Um, you have stories like this. Two men killed in a fall in 1870. Three workers killed by an explosion in 1871. Five men killed in an explosion in June of 1873. And the deaths go on and on and on, just like that. Sometimes God. just one, sometimes two, sometimes five. Oh. Uh, the high mor- um, a high mortality rate was one thing, but ghosts were another. The workmen rep- reported while they were working to hearing cries of agony coming from a man's voice inside the tunnel, and they refused to enter after dark. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a... Yeah. No wonder it took them almost a century. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The worst disaster was the Central Shaft Fire, which I think is a terrible name. Nobody asked me. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a VD. It does. I have a case of the Central Shaft Fire. I have the Central Shaft Fire. I bet you do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. How's your Central Shaft? (laughs) Is it feeling? Did Did you go into the tunnel after dark? Yeah, no, yeah. nobody asked me, so that's what it's called. Uh, I am not responsible. Uh, anyway, just after noon, Saturday, October 17, 1867, 13 men descended into the tunnel's central shaft. Men were tunneling from both east and west ends of the tunnel. The 13 workers were constructing the central shaft to ventilate the completed tunnel. A building sat on top of that shaft... It contained flammable materials, everything from oil to power lamps to the explosives that would be lowered into the shaft for blasting. The building also contained gasoline that had been tried as a method for lighting the shaft, but deemed too dangerous. All sitting in this one building right on top of the shaft. Hey, every time you say shaft, I get distracted. Shaft, I'm sorry. Shaft, shaft. Sorry, sorry. Uh, a spark from a candle set off an explosion in that building, and the flames quickly enveloped it. The four men inside that building that were watching over the workers that had been dropped down into the hole in the ground. (laughs) Uh, And that that was nearly 600 feet deep. Oh, right? Jesus. Yeah. Mm. God damn. They, tr- they had to abandon it. They tried to uh, extinguish the fire, but soon after it started, the, buildings c- the building collapsed. The men below were showered with rigging equipment, mining tools, and debris. With no working pumps for air or water, so inside that building they have pumps that pump in fresh air and pump out water mm-hmm. because there's a lot of water underground. Right. In mountains, things like that. There, those pumps were gone with the fire, so the shaft had all this debris fall into it, and then it started filling up with water. In the days that followed, Thomas Mallory was lowered into the central shaft several times to look for survivors. Before he took his first trip down, though, he made out his will. He knew how risky it was right then. Hmm. Uh, He was pulled to the surface, nearly passed out from lack of oxygen, and finally reported there's no way anybody could have survived down there. Hmm. In the meantime, before all of the bodies were accounted for, workmen told stories about seeing the dead men's ghosts on the mountaintop, in the tunnels, carrying their tools. They reported hearing muffled wails near the flooded shaft as well. The the really tragic part of this is it is hard to say if they were hearing the cries of the ghosts 
or if they were hearing cries like from survived. actual survivors yeah, that had somehow been trapped in like a pocket of air or something. They found out later that these men had sh- had created like this really like rudimentary raft, but they had built themselves a raft uh, so they could float on top of the water that was inside the shaft, but they eventually asphyxiated because of the toxic gas fumes that were in there. Yeah, uh, their bodies uh, were not found till several months later. God. Uh, so they don't know how long they lived Jesus. if they had found a pocket of air. So they don't know if these other workers heard them alive or if they heard the ghosts of them. Uh, but until their bodies were finally found, they heard them screaming. They heard them calling for help and they saw them regularly, full-bodied apparitions walking around. Wow. The other workers did. Oh. Eventually, they got all the bodies and they had a, a burial for them and every, and they found everybody and and oh. had them all you know buried and everything and then they stopped seeing them. Oh. Then the apparitions went away. God. But they still would hear moaning and screams and stuff like oh. that. Oh god, can you fucking uh, ima- can you fucking imagine like Yeah. And being down there, at, like hearing this and, and knowing it's probably a friend of yours, right? You know, somebody like, new or uh, or several. It could, it could friends, have just like, as easily been you. Yeah. Oh, right? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The moans and the groans of the tunnel kept up, and workers were again not entering. They're still like, I ain't going in there at night. So in September of 1868, a formal cavalry officer and a mechanical engineer named Paul Travers were asked by a Mr. Dunn to investigate the sounds. They entered the tunnel expecting to find nothing but the sounds of wind howling through the rock. Instead, the two of them heard the voice of a groaning man, just as reported by the more superstitious workers. Mm. Travers wrote of the experience, I'll admit, I haven't been this frightened since Shiloh. Yeah. Jesus. In 1872, the powers that be finally got a guy with a Ph.D. to take a look. Dr. Clifford Owens and a guy named James McKinstry entered the tunnel at 11.30 p.m., apparently hoping to see something. He wrote the following description of his experience. We had traveled about two full miles into the shaft when we finally halted to rest. Except for the dim, smoky light cast by our lamps, the place was as cold and dark as a tomb. James and I stood there talking for a minute or two and were just about to turn back when suddenly I heard a strange, mournful sound. It was just as if someone or something was suffering great pain. The next thing I saw was a dim light coming along the tunnel from a westerly direction. At first, I believed it was probably a workman with a lantern. Yet, as the light grew closer, it took on a strange blue color and appeared to change shape almost into the form of a human being without a head. The light seemed to be floating along about a foot or two above the tunnel floor. In the next instant, It felt as if the temperature had suddenly dropped and a cold, icy chill ran up and down my spine. The headless form came so close that I could have reached out and touched it, but I was too terrified to move. For what seemed like an eternity, McKinstry and I just stood there, gaping at the headless thing like two wooden Indians. The blue light remained motionless for a few seconds, as if it were actually looking us over, then floated off toward the east end of the shaft 
and vanished into thin air. Ooh. Dr. Owens also included the following. I am above all a realist, nor am I prone to repeating gossip and wild tales that defy a reasonable explanation. However, in all truth, I cannot deny what James McKinstry and I witnessed with our own eyes. Strangeness continued to uh, at the Hussack Tunnel both shortly before and after it opened to admit trains to pass through it. On October 16, 1874, a local hunter named Frank Webster vanished near Hussack Mountain. Three days later, he was found by a search party stumbling along the banks of the Deerfield River. He was in a state of shock, mumbling incoherently and falling down. He explains to his rescuers that strange voices had ordered him into the Hussack Tunnel, and once he was inside, he saw ghostly figures wandering around. He also said that invisible hands had snatched his hunting rifle away from him and that he'd been beaten with it. He couldn't remember leaving the tunnel. <clears throat> Members of the search party uh, recalled that Webster did not have his rifle when he was found, and the cuts and abrasions on his head and body did seem to bear evidence of a beating. Oh. In February of 1875, the first train passed through the completed Hussack Tunnel. 125 passengers made it through with no issue because they were on a train, not using <laughs> explosives to blast through a mountain. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's always a plus. Yeah, I insist that's the, in my contract writer when I ride a train. Yeah, right, exactly. The Hussack Tunnel put North Adams on the map as a New England transportation getaway. But the strange stories didn't stop. In the fall of 1875, a fire tender on the Boston and Maine rail line named Harlan Mulvaney was taking a wagon load of wood into the tunnel. He had gone just a short di distance into the shaft when he suddenly turned his team around, whipped the horses, and drove them madly out of the tunnel. A few days later, workers found the team and the wagon in the forest about three miles away from the tunnel. Harlan Mulvaney was never seen or heard from again. One former railroad employee, Joseph Impoco, worked the Boston and Maine for years. He firmly believed that the tunnel was haunted but was not afraid of the place. In fact, he credited the resident ghosts with saving his life on two separate occasions. On one afternoon, he was shipping away uh, ice from the tracks when he heard a distinct voice telling him to run, Joe, run. He looked back and saw a train bearing down on him. Sure enough, there was number 60 coming at me. Boy, did I jump back fast. He looked around for whoever had called his name, but there was no one else nearby. Later, he would recall that he had distinctly heard the voice before the train had appeared. He also added that he had seen a man pass by, waving and swinging a torch, but he hadn't paid attention to anything but the shout. The voice, wherever it had come from, had saved his life. Six weeks after the incident, Mpoka was again working on the tracks. This time he was using a heavy iron crowbar to free some freight cars that had been frozen onto the tracks. He was prying at one of the steel wheels when he heard the loud, familiar voice again frantically call out to him, Joe, Joe, drop it, Joe! Mpoka immediately released the bar and, it was, and was instantly jolted and thrown against the tunnel wall by more than 11,000 volts, volts of electricity. The charge came from a short-circuited overhead power line. The unseen friend had saved Joe's life again. So that's nice. Happy thing. <laughs> now, uh, some of these stories 
they're not uh, they're they're told they're not all the ghost stories can't necessarily all be verified, but the history can be. Um, and there are people who go in to like have have caught stuff on EVP. People get creepy things. I think Ghost Adventures did a thing of the Hussack Tunnel, but fuck that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um but there are a lot of stories that are just known. And that's one of those word of mouth things that you kind of take it into play when it when it becomes this is a story of why it's haunted and you can find that um Great, but the ones like, yeah, we're not sure if that's really happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the ghost stories seem to be very consistent. The one, like, what has happened, what people have seen. Yeah. There are people who have gone in to investigate in the 70s that had stuff, people that went in mm. the 80s that had stuff. These yeah. are just a few of what have happened. I mean, the 1970s and the 1980s, right? Um, right, right, right. The problem is it's still an active freight, uh, active freight railway, right? Aside from that, too... Explorers, maintenance workers, and passers-through have continued to tell stories of a presence in the dark, sometimes helpful, other times threatening, muffled voices, and a sense that they aren't as alone in the dark as they would like to believe. Keep in mind, freight trains run on loose schedules, they carry wide loads, and they still run through the Hoosack Tunnel today up to 12 per day. So don't go there looking for ghosts, because if you do, there's a significant chance you might end up a ghost yourself. Uh, Yes, don't, don't do it. Don't become part of the story. (laughs) Yeah. But that... That's so creepy. Oh. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Over 190 people died in that tunnel. And so, uh, yeah. And I'm always fascinated when... A ghost story immediately happens, like something happens immediately after a tragedy like that, or there's a death and there's a presence pretty quickly afterwards. Um, You know, they're still working on it and they're hearing the ghosts are already there. Like, you know, (laughs) what are you getting into in that tunnel? Like, you're literally creating a portal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're lit. You're like, the spirits don't even have to do that much work anymore. You're doing it for them. (laughs) Yeah, and there are a lot, you know, there's some myths, you know, like the Kelly, the the Ringo Kelly thing uh, around it. But Uh, those people really do die. That's good, yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's so, ah. Yeah, I. I, It's that tunnel. There it is. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mm -hmm. let us pause to take a quick break, and I'm going to refill my drink before I get into my story, which I think you're really going to like. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back. Okay. All right. It's Patreon time. It's Patreon time. (laughs) It's when we talk to you about joining Patreon time. Chat time Um, with ghouls. That's right. We're here to say, hey, thank you guys for your support. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a Patreon that we are using instead of commercials. This is our commercial yes. uh, for the Patreon. Uh, so Look at that. More for the price. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash ghoul intentions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have several different tiers at the, I believe, $8 and up tiers. We have a Discord yeah. mm-hmm. um, and we have chats every month with our Discord the coming month of August. Yes, we're we going to be doing two, our... and we're, we've moved it uh, to we've make it, it to make the time a little more agreeable with our friends overseas. So yes. uh, 
in August, we're going to do it on the first chat on the 15th at noon. That will be uh, Central noon. Standard And that will time. be for everybody, right? Yes. That's for everybody. Right. Yeah. In the, on the Discord. On the Discord. And that's noon uh, Central Standard Time, uh, US time. And the 29th will be uh, same thing, noon uh, Central Standard Time. And that one is for the patrons. The phantasm. The phantasm tears. Yeah, the the, yes. the first, the fifteenth is for the all Discord all members and the <laughs> it's the all skate, yeah, and then the 29th is for phantasm specifically. Uh, so thank you guys. Um, join the Patreon. It is a lot of fun if you're on the Discord. It's a really great community. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's so There's a cool. whole group playing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. They design the teas, um, and it, we just have a really good time over there. Yeah. But also, anything is appreciated. Uh, we Very pay much. our engineer for, for the podcast. Matt, so who is awesome! Yeah, yeah. And so, in lieu of commercials, we just are asking you guys to support us on Patreon. Um, tears start at a dollar and go up. So anything, yeah. anything is appreciated. You guys are the best. And on to the next. Yes, join us for the spoopy fun. <laughs> and we're back. Oh God! Uh, here's what you you guys just heard us talk about our Patreon for a minute or two. Yeah. Uh, what we really did was spend 45 minutes laughing about something completely ridiculous. And so we're gonna try to bring it back down and tell stories it because seriously. Because the tone—it's me laughing—sets the tone all wrong for this story. Because the story I'm about to read is actually really terrifying. So let me get into a terrifying headspace. Okay. <laughs> so I'm. Let me so, just think of. I'm so sorry. Uh, let me how, how do I? Oh, I'll just think of 2020. Here we go. Okay, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I gotta say, 2020 for me has been much more relaxing uh, than 2019. I don't know. I think it jumped the shark back in March. I think it jumped the shark I mean, in January of 2019. I mean, why even introduce murder hornets if they're not going to be important to the story? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> I can't take they're credit like, for that. That was a tweet I don't remember someone made. It was hilarious. The entire month of May. Like, I was like, what happened in May? Right? I don't remember that. Don't Did we skip May? I, Did we have May? I don't know. I don't know. Someone was suggesting we should get together and make a Christmas album. I'm like, so we should sing like, I'll be home for Christmas. Because uh, <laughs> odds are you will be. Um, yeah. <laughs> and New Year's and, <laughs> and <laughs> all of the holidays. Oh, the 12 days of quarantine. Oh. I don't even know what holiday comes after New Year's right now because <laughs> does it matter? No, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we're going to have end of plague day. Whenever that happens, we're going to have end of plague day. Mm, it should be a festival. I feel like the plague will end just in time for the world to start burning from uh, <laughs> global warming. Like right. just outright catch fire. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Now, Michael, it's cyclical. It's just... The world is cyclical. And And maybe uh, our cycle's about to be over. Just saying. Right, Uh, right. Whoopsies, ghost of a species. I will tell you that someone actually said to me, you know who it is, (laughs) that uh, (laughs) when London was covered in coal and they were having all kinds of environmental issues, they stopped using coal and everything cleared up, which is just a demonstration that the earth will recycle itself. And I was like, but they stopped using coal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The earth, it's the also, earth comes in. Also, it, it, they've said it's just, just cyclical. Global me, warming isn't a thing. I'm going <laughs> to quote, quote the late, great George Carlin on this topic, which sums up my views perfectly. Um, the earth isn't going anywhere. 
We are. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Why? It's weird. We're fucking up the environment. We'll die. We'll kill other species as well. And life might might end. But the Earth will just shrug us off like a case of fleas and go right on floating around the sun. Like, it's not, it's maybe, in George George Carlin's words, maybe that's the only reason the Earth allowed us to be formed in the first place. Needed plastic. Mm -hmm. Didn't know how to make it for itself. But now we've done our job. We can be discarded. Just saying. Yeah. But yeah, like it's like yeah. the, the world, the earth is not threatened. We should be interested in saving the environment for our own fucking dumbass sakes. But, you know, self-interest, people uh, get it wrong all the time. Right. Well. Freedoms. Freedom. Freedom ain't free. But you know, I'm not going to wear a mask because that's just, I guess, totalitarianism. <laughs> uh, Jesus Freedom. Christ. All right. Dumbass. All right. Yeah. It's free to be a dumbass. To a point. To yeah. a point. To a point. All right. Uh, my subject. Okay, today, your story. Let me try to get in the state because this is a good. This is a good story. It's it's uh, going to be a two-parter, so this is going to end on a Ooh. cliffhanger because it's just too good to try to squeeze it all into one uh, half of an episode. So it's going to go on for at least two. Uh, and so far, it's shaping up end to be one of my favorites. With the Lord, out with favorites. the devil, like literally. <laughs> well, more reverse. Um, oh, oh. In this case, so I am covering uh, something known as the Union Screaming House, which. Uh, well, you'll, it's called the Union Screaming House because it takes place in Union, Missouri. It's not, the house itself doesn't have that name. It's just an old house that was, you know, passed down through families and stuff. As far as I know, there's no uh, significant history about the place uh, that I could find. Uh, but my sources are uh, a couple of podcasts that you should give a listen to. One is called The What Cast, which is really fun. Uh, another is called Encounters, a paranormal experience podcast. They do what we do, Jamie, and they're really fun. Uh, but oh, my, my main source comes from a really well-written first-hand account of the hauntings entitled, I keep doing that, titled, (laughs) different words, titled The Uninvited by Stephen A. Lachance. Uh, Mm. It's a really good book. It's one of the more terrifying true ghost encounter uh, 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 novel-length firsthand accounts of the supernatural I've I've read, and I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, Hopefully this will uh, whet your appetite for it. Because this will be like, <laughs> this is basically me like doing a book report on The Uninvited. So thank you, Mr. Lachance, uh, for putting your story down for posterity, because quite a story it is. Let's begin. Stephen Lachance uh, hadn't planned on being a single father of three. By the time his wife, whom he declines to name, finally admitted she just couldn't do the whole motherhood thing anymore, their youngest son, Matthew, was four years old. Stephen was blindsided. <laughs> too late to make that decision, right? but okay. Well, Stephen was blindsided by her confession. They'd had their share of marital problems, like any couple, but this? Oh, just wait, she told him. It gets worse. Turns out in lieu of keeping up with their house payments, she'd been stashing the money away in a secret account uh, in order to start a new life away from Stephen and her children. So to hear him tell it, she offered a flat, hasty apology and just fucking bailed. Like... I mean, just like, just like, yes, fuck her. Just like that, Stephen and the kids were on their own. Now, granted, I realize broad strokes are de rigueur when (laughs) we're talking about an ex. But if Stephen's portrayal is even remotely accurate, and so far, as I know, she's never come forward to cry foul about, about the way she's portrayed in the book. It's it's just it's a wonder this isn't the prologue to someone else's ghost story. Uh, 
I mean, fuck her, right? Now, his wife had put off telling him about her plans for months, possibly years. Seems the only reason she finally worked up the courage was because their electricity was a day shy of being shut off, thanks to her. And wow. As of that Friday, she informed him Stephen and the kids would be on the street. Good luck. Now, imagine leaving your husband. I mean, that's really shitty, too. Like, there's it's one thing to be shitty. like, I can't it's do this super, anymore. Super and the other shitty. thing, I can't do this anymore, and I'm going to fuck you over on the way out yeah, the door. Yeah, it's because she's a fucking coward and a, a She's a coward and a cheat selfish. and a fucking selfish human being. And you know what? Good that the kids got away from that bitch because God knows right. what it would have been like being raised. But Jesus Christ. Woman, <laughs> there, yeah. there are other ways you could have done this that weren't quite so traumatic for everyone but you. Um, uh, still, it has to be said, Stephen counts himself lucky that it ha- happened the way it did because all things considered, she admitted while she was telling him all this that she came this close to abandoning the, the kids in a mall and just vanishing outright out of his life. So I guess we're supposed to think she's a hero because she didn't do that. Um, the only consolation I could summon up, he writes, was that she had at least waited for me to return home <laughs> to break the news. Wow. So amid having to shepherd himself and his three children through a messy divorce out of the fucking blue, Stephen had to sell their home while still upside down on the loan. And unless they planned to reconnoiter under grandma and grandpa's roof indefinitely, uh, renting was the only responsible option. And much as this situation might seem like an invitation to haul stakes to another city, Stephen decided to look at properties in town. He describes Union, Missouri as, quote, one of those small rural communities far away from the city to avoid, far enough away from the city to avoid crowds, noise, and pollution. Now, how he'd managed to stay in his hometown after always promising himself in high school that one day he'd get the hell out, he still isn't quite sure, but, you know, being able to look up and see a night sky full of stars was a big factor. Knowing that generations of families have called the Franklin County seat their home is another, even if not so long ago, some of those families used to pack picnic, <laughs> picnic lunches to see hangings outside the old courthouse. Yeah. Uh, he describes, he says, Union, Missouri is a small town like any other, and I call it home. I live here, and I raised my children here. It's the place I've worked, sang, and prayed. It's my home. For better or worse, it's where I set down roots. Now, despite his mention of having prayed in Union, Missouri, <laughs> to call his relationship with God troubled would be putting it mildly. He and the kids being left in the lurch had just been the final straw. Stephen's sister, Janice, with whom he'd been close all their lives, had died suddenly two years earlier, leaving Stephen Mm. first angry, of course, then increasingly convinced God was just a fever dream born of irreconcilable grief. Though he'd been raised Lutheran, by the time he and the kids came to the house where the story takes place, Stephen was adamant that religion was a sham. If there was a God and an afterlife, he reasoned, surely he would have let his sister Janice send him some kind of message of comfort from the beyond. Well, turns out his daughter, Lydia, had seen Aunt Jan in her closet not long after the funeral wearing a pretty yellow dress. Stephen assured his little girl that it had only been a dream. No, Daddy, Lydia insisted. She was there. She told me to keep it secret because you wouldn't understand. Lydia, the middle child, incidentally, was Stephen's best bet for setting the tone with prospective landlords while their broken family was searching for new digs. He needed at least three bedrooms, but landlords tended to raise an eyebrow at the sight of his two boys, especially when the property in question was an older house, uh, as they tended to be in Union, Missouri. 
Now, there would be a rapid succession of rental properties uh, before Stephen and the kids finally settled down for longer than a year. In one of those properties, Stephen discovered every cabinet in the kitchen flung open as if someone had been searching frantically for a midnight snack. In retrospect, he counts this as his first true brush with the paranormal, but at the time, he chalked it down to his kids, even though he found out later the former tenant of that apartment had lain dead on the kitchen floor for days until being found by a neighbor. Now, over the next six years, schlepping from place to place, either because of dodgy landlords or difficult, shall we say, neighbors, Stephen, a photographer, found work with a national retailer and gradually rose among the ranks to become a much sought after store opener nationwide. That meant travel. Uh, he missed more than a few band concerts, parent-teacher conferences, and weekend baseball games in the process, but the money made it possible to answer an ad in the paper that Stephen could scarcely have imagined giving serious thought to not long before. Three-bedroom house for rent in Union, full in-town living near most schools and the city park, perfect for families, a full country kitchen with up-to-date amenities, large living and uh, large living and dining area with original woodwork intact, two bathrooms with mudroom, I love that. Uh, full basement <laughs> with fruit cellar attached, large front porch and backyard, perfect for children, the right house at the right price for the right family. And the kicker, it was only 600 bucks a month. And this was in, two what? This was in 2001. Skeptical, wow. but understandably curious, Stephen took Lydia along for the open house, leaving the boys with his parents, lest the property owner get cold feet at the sight of two hellions prone to make short work of the wainscoting. Um, <laughs> a maintenance man happily showed Stephen and Lydia around while they waited the arrival of the landlord, Mr. Winters. At first, Stephen was sure the house must have incurred damage from the devastating Missouri flood of 2000, but the handyman put those fears to rest. The house was well away from the worst hit areas, and yet it was coming so damn cheap. We found ourselves standing in a living room with a cherub border adorning the tops of the walls, Stephen writes. The original woodwork was intact, with uh, and large wooden columns ran to the ceiling, creating a divider that we would later realize separated the, the living room from the family room. The house had two floors, three bedrooms, and a large family kitchen with a mudroom uh, that led to the back door. The upstairs bedrooms connected to a breezeway that could be accessed from either room. There was a bathroom at the bottom of the stairs and another in the mudroom. In short... The place was ideal <laughs> for a family of four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds great. Yeah, I... yeah, and it, the pictures—it's—it's it's a lovely home. It—it it, it is, you know, if it weren't haunted uh, by pure evil. But we'll get there. Um, so the yeah. place was ideal, but the landlord was another story. Now, before we continue, I have to point out that there's a rather glaring discrepancy here that begs mentioning. Before he published his account of their time in the house in his book, The Uninvited, Stephen uh, wrote a blog about their harrowing experiences online. Mr. Winters, in all his eccentric glory, appears to be the product of artistic license for the purposes of the book. See, in the blog, Stephen describes a kindly old woman being the landlord, and she's the one that gives them the grand tour and uh, as though she's giving them a tour of a museum. In contrast, the book gives us Mr. Winters, a pale, shriveled old man in a cockeyed wig with bright red lipstick. Whereas the old woman mentioned in the blog is more or less harmless, the book... Um, the book's Mr. Winters plays a decidedly more sinister role. By the end of the story, Stephen is kind of suggesting that the old Harlequin is somehow in league with the house, luring families in for the spirits to torment. I'm going to call bullshit, but only on that element. 
We both uh, have those. Right. Slight hashtag actually right. is in each story. Uh, now, that said, where everything else is concerned about the haunting, uh, the book and the blog are in pretty much total agreement. It, it, so in my movie, the dubious Mr. Winters is just an editor's invention to give the story a tangible villain. And I can easily see an editor going, hey, this is a great story, but you need like a, we need like a, you know, a character, a human character to kind of be the, you know, we need that trope of the, of the, the, the caretaker, whatever, fulfilled. And, right. you know, and so uh, it's an yeah. odd, it's an odd yeah. choice to say the least, because given what Stephen and the kids would go through in that house, a cartoon antagonist of Mr. Winter's caliber, colorful though he is, just wasn't necessary. For my money, he kind of reads like a cross between Marvin Zindler of Slime in the Ice Machine fame, if you know who I'm talking about, please look it up, uh, and Calvin Fisher from Bob's Burgers, but I digress. Mm. Now, of course, there was a basement. Hashtag fuck a basement. Mr. Winters <laughs> put, pe- uh, put, uh, put, Mr. Winters put special emphasis on this feature of the home while giving Stephen and 12-year-old Lydia the tour. To Lydia and me, Stephen writes the basement was a basement. To Mr. Winters, it was a masterpiece of historical significance. See here, <laughs> he said, pointing to the ceiling. That's a butcher's shower the men used to clean themselves after they'd slaughtered the hogs. Yay. All the, well, <laughs> all the same, Stephen was eager for the home, as any single father would be who'd spent several years raising kids in apartments and run-down rental properties leased out by peeping Tom Hillbillies. That's the whole chapter in the book, and it's wonderful. Um, yes. But while some, Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, they didn't have a good six years. Thanks, Mom. Yeah. Uh, but while something about the open house had convinced he and Lydia that the home would indeed be their, theirs, they just had a feeling not all boded well. That night, in their apartment, Matthew, the youngest, ran screaming out of his bedroom. There was a man lurking in the corner, he said. Michael, the oldest, blinked at them from the top bunk as Stephen led Matthew by the hand, checking every conceivable place the intruder might be hiding. Sometimes your mind can play tricks on you, champ, Stephen assured Matthew. No, Daddy, the seven-year-old stood firm. This was no trick. He was there. Stephen let the frightened little boy sleep in the master bedroom with him that night. Um, as he turned out the hallway light on his way from the bathroom, Stephen saw the shadow of a man rush by. He turned the light back on. Nothing. He chuckled nervously to himself that he'd just let Matthew's nightmare get to him and went to bed. Hours later, Stephen would have his own nightmare. He awoke, quote-unquote, to a presence, pinning him down on the bed, whispering, See me. See me. Over. <laughs> And over in the hollow, desiccated voice of pure fucking evil. When at last, yeah, when at last even mustered the strength to open his eyes in the dream, he found himself looking into the face he describes as Christ gone mad. A week later. Bizarro Christ. Right? Oh, God. Oh, I lived for your sins. Uh, <laughs> oh, gross. Um, a week later, the call came. The house was theirs. Lachance goes into detail here about Mr. Winters weirdly arranging to meet Stephen at a local diner as opposed to the house itself to finalize the paperwork, but I'm going to give all this stuff a pass. I just don't buy it. I mean, it could be that Stephen swapped out the original, uh, or it could be that he substituted Mr. Winters out for a kindly old woman in the blog to avoid legal repercussions that have since become moot. But the way Mm. he describes the man, his clownish appearance, his excruciating table manners, for one thing, his oddly elevated speech, it's just too much for me. Um, There may be some truth in it, but Lachance, I think, oversells it by giving us a mashup of all the classic occult villain assistant tropes in one go. Mr. Winters is clearly supposed to be our Renfield, and it's kind of ridiculous. I wish he hadn't tried to spice things up uh, with this addition because 
because it seriously threatens the credibility of the larger story, which, Absolutely. for the most part, though, I find extremely compelling. So let's just gloss this over and, and, and uh, reserve judgment to the end. Yeah, it's that thing where it's like, why do you have to add to it? I think it was probably the prob- facts and, and, are so interesting. And maybe truth is stranger than fiction. Maybe I'm completely wrong on that. But in my opinion, right. it seems too writerly uh, to be right. real. So maybe there Red wasn't flags. Mr. Winters, but he, you know, or just, or maybe the landlord was was someone else, and he's like, I'm going to make up a, a, a different landlord so the real landlord doesn't take it personally. I mean, I don't know, but it's just a, I, it, I just don't think it helps the story at all. In fact, it hurts it. But. The actual meat of the story doesn't need it, so awesome. Uh, Basically, all you need to know is that they got the fucking house. Now, the night before moving in, the full weight of his wife having abandoned them six years prior hit Stephen like a ton of bricks, as if for the first time. So wrapped up had he been in taking care of the children that he'd never really Mm -hmm. given himself time to reflect on where things had gone wrong. Survival, man. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before settling into what was to be the home of their dreams, at least in theory, Stephen was questioning everything. Had he made the right choices? Had it been his fault their mother left them? Depression came down hard. In fact, he admitted to himself he'd been depressed for years. He'd just been ignoring it. That night, Stephen had another dream. The kids and I were living in our new house. Everything was unpacked and put away. The bright sun shone through the windows. Everything looked so white, fresh, and clean. There was a knock at the door, more of a pounding, actually, and I went to see who was there. It was probably one of our new neighbors stopping by to welcome us to the block. Instead, my ex-wife was on the porch holding something in her hands. As soon as I noticed that, the dream's mood changed. Storm clouds began raging through the sky. Lightning crackled and thunder crashed. She shoved her bundle into my arms. I told you before, I can't be a mother. Her voice echoed throughout the house, and she turned and ran away. I must have been in shock because she was gone and the door was closed before I understood the impact of what had just happened. Then the bundle in my arms moved. Pulling back the cover, I discovered I was holding a baby. A baby with crystal blue eyes and a shade I had never seen before. Then Lydia came up to me and asked, What is that? I looked at her in shock and said, It's a baby. It's our baby. With that, I began to cry. Moving day came and went without much ado, apart from having to deal with some really shitty neighbors on the way out of their old apartment complex. Uh, Really, read that chapter, because fuck, you're like, fuck that piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Stephen and his dad, who helped them move. Uh, Stephen noticed something unusual about the Union House that hadn't registered during the original walkthrough. The interior doors all had old-fashioned hook latches. On the outside... Da, da, da. What? <laughs> no, I don't uh-huh. like that. Over the next several days, the family got to work on packing and arranging their belongings. Lydia insisted an angel painting she liked be hung in the living room with the cherub trim. Alas, no sooner had Stephen turned his back after affixing the painting to a freshly hammered nail that the whole thing came crashing down. It took four tries and a lot of swearing, Stephen admits, to get it to stick. <laughs> Motherfucking angels, stick! <laughs> I, I, I feel you, man. I feel you. Meanwhile, Lydia, who'd taken a looking out of the front room window, registered an odd habit in their new neighbors. People walking by, especially older folks, tended to cross the street when they were coming and uh, passing by in front of the house. She found this hilarious and shared it with her dad. Now, he figured the previous tenants were <laughs> probably just real pieces of work and that he inspired this weird level of respect <laughs> in the neighbors. And you know, soon enough, he'd make the rounds and assure them that uh, you know a new sheriff was in town. But in the meantime, they had work to do and stuff. So 
you know, whatever. They just kind of laughed it off. Now, it goes without saying, old homes come with their share of complaints, most often the air conditioning. The larger the house, the harder it is to keep cool, especially when that house is pushing almost 150 years old. However, the AC in Union House worked remarkably well. A little too well, Stephen thought. In fact, for uh, encroaching summer in Missouri, the house was frigid. After a while, he could pinpoint specific areas, some colder than the rest of the house by more than 30 degrees. What's more, these cold spots were on the move. On at least one occasion, while standing in the upstairs hallway, Stephen felt an icy current of air rush past him, but no vent was nearby to explain it. Their first night in the house, not having the energy to assemble their bunk beds, which he wanted to replace anyway, Stephen and the boy slept downstairs uh, in the master bedroom while Lydia settled onto her, into her new digs on the second floor. Around midnight, she sleepily crept downstairs and curled up next to them on the bed. My closet door keeps opening up, she said with half-open eyes, and it sounded like there were boxes moving in the other room. <laughs> yeah. mm. um, that Sunday, while the children were at church with their grandparents, which Stephen still let them do, even though he was no longer a believer, Stephen heard a crash from upstairs, but chalked it down to the boys having left something precariously balanced in their room and just decided to ignore it. Later, after the kids came home, Stephen put them to work in the yard. The boys were sent to retrieve a garden hose from the basement at one point. Michael came back up with the hose, but Matthew wasn't with him. Where's your brother? Stephen asked. I don't know. He should be right behind me. Just then, a scream pealed through the house. Stephen sprang to action and discovered poor Matthew cowering in the kitchen, pointing shakily at the basement door. Monster, he whispered, absolutely petrified. The other, yeah, the other, there is one. It's a basement. Yeah, so. right? Hashtag yep. fuck a basement, specifically that yep. basement. Uh, the other kids who'd followed Stephen into the house broke out laughing. Stephen sent them from the room and made for the basement door. No, Dad, Stephen shrieked. There's a monster in there. It chased me up the stairs. Stephen diligently canvassed the basement and assured his frightened little boy the room was monster-free. All the same, Matthew refused to cross that threshold. That threshold. The rest of the afternoon passed without incident. Matthew switched gears, as children often do, and spent the rest of the day frolicking with his siblings in the yard, playing in the sprinklers and whatnot. But that night, pulling into the driveway after taking the kids out for Taco Bell, Stephen did a double-take. Every light in the house was on, and inside it was freezing. Stephen gave everyone a dad lecture about utility bills and adjusted Mm -hmm. the thermostat again. Later, Matthew came running out of the downstairs bathroom. He'd left the door open so as not to be isolated from everyone else, and while doing so, saw the monster creeping toward him from the basement across the kitchen floor. He described it as a monster clown. Now, Stephen calmed the boy down and chastised the other kids for making fun of him, but what the hell was going on? Things weren't adding up. The house just had started to feel kind of strange. He pushed it out of his mind, which he was good at. Surely the move was just taking its toll on the sensitive little boy. Surely Lydia had dreamed about her closet, uh, had dreamed her closet door opening. Surely the odd noises, cold air drafts, and lights being on when they got home had all had logical explanations. With these thoughts running through his head, he and the kids drifted off to sleep in the master bedroom. Sometime in the middle of the night, he writes, a noise woke me up. Sitting up in bed, I looked at the doorway that led into the living room. To my utter astonishment, An old man wearing a red flannel shirt stood there. He was motionless, expressionless, just staring at me and my three sleeping children. Stephen rubbed his eyes in disbelief. All at once, the figure was gone. He laughed a short, reassuring laugh under his breath and thought to himself, these kids are going to be the death of me. (laughs) 
The issue with the lights persisted with daunting regularity. Every night after Stephen got off work, he'd swing by to pick the kids up from his parents' place across town, enjoy a home-cooked meal uh, cooked by his doting mother, then drive home to find every light in the house on. This happened so often, despite repeated stern warnings about utility costs, that Stephen took to checking around the house every night to make sure he and the kids were alone. One evening, while conducting his now routine sweep through the living room, Stephen felt a surge of energy run through his body like an electrical shock. What the fuck? Okay, something wasn't right. He enlisted his father, who happened to be an electrician, to inspect the home's wiring the next day. No explanation presented itself, but his father felt the same electrical surge while himself puttering around near the old butcher shower in the basement. The feeling was so strong that it made the old man's eyes water. Now, how this was logically possible, he couldn't begin to imagine. It didn't help matters that while this was going on, a box fell loudly somewhere upstairs, not once, but twice, while Stephen's dad was giving things a look-see. The next day, Stephen brought the kids over to his parents' house for a family barbecue. When the children were out of earshot, Stephen's father brought him over to the grill and asked him in a low voice, how's everything with the house? Fine, Stephen answered vaguely. Yeah, well, said the older man, I I've been thinking about yesterday and... You know I don't believe in this stuff, but he paused, <laughs> flipped a hot dog, took a deep breath. You don't think you rented a haunted house, do you? <laughs> I don't believe in it, but what if? <laughs> Stephen laughed it off. Uh, this wasn't like his old man at all, so clearly his experience in the house had spooked him. Stephen just steered the conversation elsewhere and put the question out of his mind. <laughs> Such a dad. Uh, let's talk about let's something else. Let's talk about something else. Later that night, as he and the kids pulled into the driveway again, all the lights were on. This time, however, for a split second, Stephen could swear he'd seen someone looking out at them from an upstairs window. Mm. Wow, dad really got to me, he thought to himself. <laughs> a few days later, as Lydia set up the Monopoly board for game night and the others argued over which piece was belonged to which, uh, Stephen glimpsed something out of the corner of his eye. Just a quick flick of movement, he writes, something in the doorway that led to the family room. I looked toward it again and realized that it wasn't something. It was the dark figure of a man, backlit by the light from the kitchen. He was solid in form, except his form seemed to be made up of moving, churning, dark gray and black smoke or mist. Stephen looked down at the Monopoly board, determined to shake off what clearly had to be a trick of his mind, but when he looked back up, the figure was still there, standing in the middle of the room. Though no features were visible as such, Stephen could feel the man's eyes boring into him and the children. After what seemed like a small eternity, the figure vanished, melting away. His first instinct as a father was to get the fuck out of the house with the kids. Yeah. Not, not wanting to alarm them unnecessarily, he calmly picked up his keys from the coffee table, thank God they weren't on the kitchen counter, <laughs> and, su <laughs> and suggested they all go back to Grandma and Grandpa's house for a snack. Matthew and Michael were confused. What about the game? Lydia, on the other hand, read something in her father's expression that terrified her and, remaining cool, eagerly seconded the proposal. No sooner were they filing out the door, as if calmly enacting a fire drill, than the sound of a man screaming erupted through the house. The scream was so loud, so full of pain and agony, that the neighborhood dogs, as far as two blocks away, started barking in panic. Get in the car, Whoa. Stephen shouted. The kids didn't need to be told twice. Michael, I love right. this. Michael pulled an action hero move and slid across the hood of a car. <laughs> of the car. <laughs> he, said he, he said he'd seen it in a James Bond movie. Good on you, kid. Nice. Uh, but they all got in. Stephen turned the keys in the ignition, peeled out the fucking driveway for all he was worth. As they drove away, Matthew's quavering voice issued from the back seat. 
Ready, he said. The basement monster is standing in the upstairs window. And we'll pick this up next week. Because <laughs> it's fucking terrifying. And, I, you know, you got to go and have a palate cleanser. So go watch some yeah. Jim Gaffigan on Netflix like Jamie does when she so, watches Insidious. That's what I do. <laughs> Find something funny to watch after. It's such a good story. Really, check out the book. You can buy it on Kindle. I did. Um, and it's really good. Like, it's so good. But, like, what's the name of the book again? It's called The Uninvited by Stephen Lachance. L A C H A N C. Okay. Stephen A. Lachance. It's like La okay. Chance, but all one word. Uh, and okay, it's gotcha. good. It's really okay. good and very believable. I I buy it. I buy it. Something about his, with the exception of the, of the Mr. Winters, which feels like an editor's creation. Um, right. I think the Chance tells a really good story, and it, it's believable because he's not trying to oversell the things that actually happened. It, they all kind of gradually build up, and I'm like, yeah, this is this is how real hauntings happen. This isn't Hollywood. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a good story, and I buy it. And it's a terrifying book. Ooh, so yeah, okay, well, I'll finish up the summation next week, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. or well, hopefully, it might, if it's that good, I might go on to do two uh, two more parts, but probably just one. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Then. Yeah, I'm okay. good. Right. Well, I loved it. I thank can't you. wait to have the rest. Thank you, thank you. Well, I loved your Dude. story about the Husak tunnels. Thanks, thank uh, you. Or tunnel. Um. All right. Well, cool. Uh, 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 we have on Saturday is our. First Patreon chat on our Discord yes. for months. That'll be fun. Yeah, be noon Texas time. Noon, yeah, right. Central. God, I'm gonna have to get up before noon on a Saturday. I know. I'm this so is how sorry. much we love you guys. I just want you to know that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Groovy, groovy. Uh, uh, thank you guys. Thank you, patrons, uh, for helping to support. Uh, uh, Ghoulintentions.com for your stories. Tell yes. us your news of the weird. Yes, please. And your ghost, always your ghost stories. Please tell us your ghost stories. Um, and oh, and if you, uh, sorry, one thing. If you if you uh, have a news of the weird, uh, try to send us an article. Like, send us an actual reference material so we can cite it. Because otherwise, it's yeah. just gossip. And, you know, that's a different podcast. <laughs> but you can write the you can write the gossip for our, our ghosticles. Absolutely. We can do that. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. You're the best. We love you. Stay, we love you. Stay safe. Stay sane. And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.